Go ahead and keep your Bible out. We're going to work through that passage this morning. I thought last week was a hard one to preach. This one's a little bit challenging too. Well, hey, look, on Monday night, somebody in California got some life-changing news. 10, 33, 41, 47, 56, and the Powerball is 10. You believe that? They won $2.04 billion. That's crazy. I'm sorry you didn't win. (laughs) It could have been great, couldn't it? I'm sure you had plans for all $2 billion of it. Yeah, well, if you'll give me a minute, I'm going to try to make your loss a little easier to bear, okay? Because there's some bad news that goes along with winning the lottery. It's It's not really all it's chalked up to be. Right, first off, most people don't take the full payout on the annuity, the $2.04 billion. They take the lump sum, which in this case was only $987 million. So, you know, 24% of which the state of California is going to take right out off the top, bring it down to about $758 million. Then come tax season, when you pay in your income for the year, you're going to get taxed at 37%. So that's going to take another couple hundred million. You're down to 758. Then the state of California is going to take some taxes out of that. You're down to about only $600 million or so. Then once they take out all those deductions and all your obligations for taxes and things like that, you're going to have to contend with all those family and friends. You're going to come out of the woodwork looking to... Looking to have a piece of the pie, and they're going to say, hey, you got $600 million. Come on, can't you spare 10 or $20 million for me? You know? And then you got the track record of previous lottery winners to deal with. I mean, things don't typically end well for lottery winners. They spend their money frivolously, end up penniless. I mean, is it really worth it? I mean, we're talking a few hundred million dollars. That's not that much, is it? I don't know. It'd kind of be nice. <laughs> Probably be fun. But I, I have uh, forgot to mention the major danger that comes with the lottery, which is, according to Jesus, the spiritual danger that belongs to those who are rich. And I wonder, you know, I was in the gas station Monday night getting a Gatorade and was behind a lady who bought $10 worth of Powerball tickets. You know, $10 isn't that much. So her return on investment, zero, but she also didn't lose much. But what if the cost of winning the Powerball was missing out on eternal life. How hard it will be for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible, Jesus says. Is it worth it? No, not not to me either. And so I know, you know, it would have been cool to have been a Powerball winner, but maybe you dodged a bullet. Maybe walking with Jesus is more important than that. In fact, this morning, as we work through this text, I want you to see clearly that Jesus calls us, his followers, to treasure him above all else, especially money. Okay, Jesus calls his followers to treasure him above everything else, especially money. And I hope you see that already. You know where we're going. David read the passage to you, and maybe your skin was crawling, and you were preparing yourself for the sermon on money. And you're going to get it. And so I just want to challenge you, okay, 
challenge you right here at the beginning to just maybe open up your heart, to think with an open mind, and ask yourself, is your money keeping you from following Jesus? It ain't worth it. So we've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we're finally here in chapter 10. And this familiar passage, the rich young ruler, is a continuation, in a way, of what we saw last week. Last week, we looked at the countercultural values that Jesus expects his followers to live by, especially in the way we treat the weak and vulnerable, women and children. Today, he continues teaching about those values, which are radically different than the prevailing attitudes of his culture and of ours. And it's the attitude that he has towards money. And so this rich young man stands for us as a perfect example. I mean, you might put yourself in his shoes and think about if you were the him walking up to Jesus and asking what you had to do to receive eternal life. What would Jesus tell you? I think the thing you'd have to come away with is this basic principle that's going to guide our time together this morning. That Jesus' call to discipleship, follow me, exposes your heart's treasure. Jesus' call to discipleship exposes your heart's treasure. That's what happens here in this story. Let's look at it again. This man runs up to Jesus, kneels before him, and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you call me good? Only God is good. But then he gets right to the man's question. Well, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud or cheat. And honor your father and mother. In verse 20, the man says, I've done all these things from my youth till now. And so Jesus hits him. One thing you lack. Go sell all you possess and give it to the poor and come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. And of course the man walks away sad because Mark tells us he has many possessions. Now this man is an interesting character, not just because he has the designation of the rich young ruler, which is what my Bible calls him. And if you are known around town as the rich young ruler, that's, that's pretty intense, okay? <laughs> so I find that interesting. But he has a lot going for him from a religious perspective as well. I mean, he's clearly interested in receiving eternal life, which for him definitely means life with God, the life blessed by God that's going to go on forever and ever. Apparently, he had heard Jesus' message about the coming of God's kingdom, and he had seen the kind of life and ministry that Jesus had had, and he decided he was just the kind of guy who could give him assurance that he was going to have eternal life, that he was going to receive God's blessing and he could bank on it. So he's a devout man looking for God's coming kingdom. Not only that, he has a pretty spotless track record in his obedience to God. I mean, this is the kind of guy who never murdered anybody. He'd never committed adultery, he'd never stolen, he'd never lied or bore false witness. He'd never committed fraud. He'd always honored his mother and father. I mean, I, I, it's hard for us to believe, but this man has a clean conscience before the Lord when it comes to these commandments. These are the commandments straight from the Ten Commandments, their last six. They're what theologians and Bible scholars often call the second table of the law 
which relate not to the way we worship God, but the way we love our neighbors. And this man had loved his neighbors pretty well. Never killed any of them, never slept with anybody's wife, never cheated on his taxes, never lied, always respected his parents. This guy's got it pretty good. And I think when Jesus heard this man explain that he had a clean conscience, that he'd done it all from his youth, I don't think Jesus was reading between the lines and trying to pull a gotcha on him. Mark tells us he looked at him and he loved him. I think he saw this man as what he was, a man who was incredibly open to what God might do in him. But there was one area of his life that had been left unexamined. And when Jesus said, the one thing you lack is to sell all you have and give to the poor, he exposed what the man really cared about. He might have loved his neighbors, fulfilling the second table of the law, but God had also said, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And it seemed like this man's money might have been more important to him than God. I mean, if he'd really wanted eternal life, to enter into the kingdom of God and to be confident that he possessed all the blessings that God had promised, he would have to completely divest himself of all his possessions. I'm talking about complete 100% liquidation of all his assets. And then he's going to have to take it all, donate it to the poor, and then leave behind everything he's known and follow Jesus on the road of discipleship. And for that man, that was too high a cost. He went away sad because he had lots of possessions. That's a radical demand that Jesus makes. I mean, it would stop any of us in our tracks. I mean, you may not be a billionaire, but by the standards set in most of human history and even around the world today, you are incredibly wealthy. What if Jesus had asked that of you? I can't count on my hands how many times somebody's asked me about this passage. You think this is something Jesus expects from everybody, or is this just a test he was putting to this man? And you're like me, we want to find a loophole here to try to make it seem like, oh, this was just a test for this guy. Surely Jesus isn't looking for this from all of us. And then you start reading the New Testament, and you see that the earliest Christians certainly understood it that way. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people are saved, and almost immediately... Everybody sells all their possessions and puts it into a common treasury so that no one in the church has any kind of need. That's pretty astounding and amazing. And that kind of radical renunciation of the world's goods is just the kind of thing you'd expect from Jesus. I mean, this is the guy who had told his disciples just a few days before, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better to go into the kingdom of God blind than to go to hell with two eyes. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life lame than to go to hell with two hands. And if your right foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better to go into eternal life crippled than to go to hell with two feet. In radical choice to do away with one's eye or hand or foot if it means following Jesus. And he, he's the man who had the audacity in Matthew chapter 10 to look at his disciples and say, if you don't hate your mother and father, you're not worthy of being called mine. And if you don't hate your brother or sister, 
You're not worthy of being called mine. He's the man who looked a would-be follower in the face and said, Lord, I'm going to follow you wherever you go, but first let me bury my father. He just said, let the dead bury the dead. You follow me now. I mean, Jesus telling this guy, sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and come follow me, seems radical, but it's just the kind of demand Jesus would make. He's after wholehearted, single-minded devotion that willingly gives up everything to follow him. And in making that call, he exposes what our hearts desire. For some people, the cost of following Jesus means giving up sin that they really enjoy and cherish. And the cost is too high. Other people, it's family relationships. Their family means too much to them to jeopardize that by following Jesus. Jesus' call to discipleship exposes the heart's treasure. And for this man, and I guess probably if you're like me, for a lot of people like him, they treasure their money most of all. So you got to deal with it. So let's think about money for a minute. Why is money, why is wealth or an abundance of possessions such a danger to discipleship? Look at what Jesus says in verse 23. He said, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying, who then can be saved? And looking at him, Jesus said, with people it's impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Listen, there's really no way around the verses we just read. And if, you, if you're honest with them, this is what I think you come away with. This is a minimum. Wealth uniquely complicates the conditions of discipleship. Wealth uniquely complicates the conditions of discipleship. The Jewish society of Jesus' day took for granted the fact that wealth or financial prosperity was a sure sign of God's blessing. They just took it for granted. If you're wealthy and rich, you are obviously blessed by God. It's a sign of his favor on your life, that you've got lots of money. And so when Jesus starts talking about rich people having a, a hard time, or it even being impossible for rich people to get into heaven, I think their mind is blown. Because people like this rich young ruler are just the kind of people they're hoping are there in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, just from a pragmatic perspective, having a wealthy guy as part of your group would mean that when you go out to eat, you're not eating off the dollar menu, but maybe you're a little open to some finer cuisines. <laughs> that instead of wearing threadbare clothing, maybe you could get an extra change or two here or there. Instead of having to rely on the hospitality of people when you roll into a new city, you can get rooms for yourself. And it'd be nice to have some rich folks in your church. I mean, sorry, in your apostolic band. Okay? And I can relate to these men. What are you doing? Turning this guy away. He's a prime candidate. You said, whoa, guys, you're assessing things wrong. This man is wealthy, and that's going to create some challenges for him in following me. I think that little phrase he uses, the little picture, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven is so beautiful. And I know you've heard preachers say that the, the needle's eye was this door in Jerusalem that camels had to kneel down to get through. But that's just not true. Okay, that Some preacher somewhere made that up. There's no door in Jerusalem called the needle's eye or anything like that. Um, I think Jesus wants you to allow your mind to imagine what it'd be like to fit a camel through the eye of a needle. Camels were the largest animal in Palestine. So the biggest animal you can imagine through the smallest opening you can imagine. Figure that one out. I think if you were in Texas today preaching, he'd say something like this. It's easier for a longhorn steer to go through a doggy door than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, okay? Easier for a longhorn to go through a doggy door. It's easier for a Ford Super Duty to fit in a compact car slot at HEB, right? Is that going to happen? There's no way to do it. It's impossible, Jesus says. Wealth, of all things, that complicates the choice to follow Jesus Wealth complicates it uniquely. It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I think there are a few reasons for that. So I've prayed through this and come up with a few, and tell me what you think. One reason I think wealth is so dangerous to discipleship is because it distracts us. Our wealth distracts us. Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But rather, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I know you've experienced this. There are some people who obsessively check their bank balance. Every morning, first thing you do, you have your cup of coffee, sitting in your chair, and you open up your Wells Fargo app, or Chase Bank app, or Sage Capital Bank app, and you want to see, where are we sitting today? Where, where's our balance? Other people, it's their stock portfolios. And maybe lately, you know, you try to avoid all of that. But some people obsess over their bank balances and stock portfolios. Other people scheme ways to earn more money, to get rich quick, or to spend less money. Y'all remember when extreme couponing was a thing? How many, how many hours did you waste of your life clipping coupons? Okay? I mean, it's crazy. How much is your time worth? But for just a few dollars, people would coupon like crazy. Eventually, I mean, whether you got a little or a lot, your money becomes the all-encompassing reality of your life. You lay in bed at night thinking of the bills you've got to pay and the financial plans you're going to set. You know, wealth distracts. It diverts our attention. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's why Jesus, when he was talking about the way people receive the gospel, talked about it in the terms of seed and soils. So there are different kinds of soils that receive the gospel message. And there's one kind that initially spring up and look really good, but eventually get choked out. You know who they are? They're the people who heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Wealth is so dangerous because it distracts us from what's most important. And in distracting us, wealth also deceives us. Deceives us. Jesus mentioned that there in 
Mark chapter 4, but Paul also talks about it in 1 Timothy 6. He tells Timothy to instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Look, riches, wealth, deceives us. We even have a term for it. We call it being financially secure. And we think that there's this dollar figure. Maybe it's $2 billion. Maybe it's $1,000. Your situation and circumstances dictate for you what that dollar amount is. But there's this imaginary number that if we could only get there, if our retirement account could only get to X, if our bank balance could only get to X, We'd be set. We'd be secure. We'd be able to withstand any temptation or trial or any tragedy that strikes our lives. We'd have the money necessary to make it through. But that is deception. There's no amount of money in the world that can keep you safe. It's not possible. Doesn't matter how much money is in your bank account, in the snap of a finger, it can evaporate. You ever heard of inflation? You ever heard of financial mismanagement, Ponzi schemes, fraud? Maybe you've been tracking the news this week of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX and the founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, who started the week number 40 on Forbes' list of billionaires with an estimated $17.2 billion net worth. And as of today, is penniless and bankrupt. There are rumors that he's on the run in Argentina. Overnight, money goes away. It's deceptive. Money tells you that, hey, if you could just get that certain amount of money in your bank account, you'll be set. But only God can protect you and provide for you. Money deceives you. That's why James says in James chapter 4 to the rich, he says, Come now, you who say, tomorrow or today, we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor. Appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. For it's in the last days that you've stored up for yourselves treasure. I know money makes things easier. But if you're hoping your money is going to save you from whatever is coming, you're deceived. Wealth deceives you. Not only that, wealth ends up defining us. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 12. He says that, hey, even when you have an abundance of possession, your life doesn't consist in this. And that's what happens. Jesus tells this parable about this man who has a bumper crop when it comes harvest time. So much so that he doesn't even have barns to hold it all. And so he says, I know what I'll do. 
I'll tear down my barns, build back bigger barns, and then I'll be set. All I have to do is eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus says, you fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you. And that's the reality, that our wealth comes to define us. Maybe it's the cars we drive, or the clothes we wear, or the houses we own. But eventually, after obsessing over it and believing if we just get it, then it will protect us. Eventually, it defines us. And our identity becomes bound up in what we have. I think that's what's going on for this young guy. He walked away sad because he had many possessions. He could not dissociate who he was from what he had. That happens for an awful lot of people. Like the way David Garland said it, he said, most people have plenty to live on, just nothing to live for. They spend their days thinking about how they can acquire more money, and they get to the end of their life, and what do they say? I wish I had more money in my bank account. I wish I'd worked harder. I wish I hadn't missed out on that bonus in 2022. I say, well, I wish I'd spent more time with my family. I wish I'd seen what was really valuable in my life. And ultimately, wealth doesn't just define us, it destroys us. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And the reality is that you pursue money and eventually you get it, but at what cost? It blinds you in your moral judgments so that in an attempt to get more money, you fudge on your taxes or cut the corners at work. It hardens your heart towards people in need. Say, I work for everything I've got. Why should I help anybody out? And ultimately, your bank account may be full, but you're spiritually bankrupt. You're a shell of a person. And so for those reasons, wealth uniquely complicates the conditions of discipleship. Jesus says it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Near impossible if it weren't for the grace of God who specializes in the miraculous. And he can save rich people. But it comes at a great cost. You know, I've discovered that you don't have to have a lot of money to struggle with these things. I remember when we first moved to the Woodlands in 2013, we were surrounded by wealth like we had never imagined. I mean, Mobile, Alabama, like I tell you, we were lucky we had shoes and running water and learned how to read, right? But in the Woodlands, man, you park next to Bentleys at Walmart and Maseratis are in the drive-thru at McDonald's. No lie, that's how it works, right? And so it didn't take long, me and Aaron there being about a month, and I'm rolling around in my 2000 Honda Civic, you know, <laughs> And I'm seeing Denali's and, man, those, I didn't even know a Super Duty was a thing until I came to the Woodlands. It's like, man, I would have settled for a Toyota Tacoma, but not anymore. You know, I got to have one of those. And I started scheming how I was going to upgrade my ride. That's how it works. It gets into our souls. And before long, Jesus isn't the focus of our life. Money is. 
But he's called us to follow him. He's supposed to be our heart's treasure. And so how do we get right? How do, how do we get back on track? What would he have us do? Well, here's the last point. We need to build our hope in this fact, that followers of Jesus can be confident of God's provision and protection. You can either pursue money or you can trust God. Those are your options. Listen to what the disciples say here in Mark 10, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he'll receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. See, the disciples are thick-headed, slow to understand. But they had overheard Jesus' interaction with this man and had tried to process his explanation. And Peter hears him saying, like, hey, look, following me means giving up everything. And Peter says, well, I can do that. I already have done that. We've left everything to follow you. And that's really true. This Greek word, me." It's the same word Mark uses in Mark chapter 1 to describe Simon, Peter, and Andrew's response to Jesus' invitation to follow him. So that immediately they left their nets. They left their nets and followed him. A little up the sea, they see James and John in the boat with their dad, Zebedee. And Jesus says, follow me. Mark tells us that they left their dad in the boat and they followed Jesus. Later, Jesus calls Matthew, Levi, says, follow me. And Matthew got up from his tax booth and followed Jesus. I mean, all 12 of the disciples, hand-selected by Jesus to be with him so that he could give them authority to preach and to cast out demons, every one of them had left everything behind to follow Jesus. There was a clear line in the sand in their life where they lived one way, and then Jesus said, follow me, and they'd left everything behind to follow. And according to Jesus, they might not have had much, from the world's standards. And Jesus is the man who, when a disciple said, hey, I'm going to follow you anywhere, he said, might want to think about that. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I mean, Jesus lived on the radical generosity of the people around him. He didn't own anything. I mean, he wasn't very significant from the world's perspective, not making any list of billionaires. And so the disciples followed along. They're homeless, basically walking around in itinerant ministry, plucking grain to eat, hoping Jesus can do a miracle so that they don't go hungry and starve. You know, these men are living on the edge. But according to Jesus, they were just the kind of people who could expect God's provision and protection. He said, there's nobody who's left everything to follow me who won't receive in this life brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, and houses. Well, Jesus is, of course, not preaching the prosperity gospel, which tells us if we believe in Jesus, then we're always going to be healthy and wealthy, and everything's going to go easy for us. Now, what Jesus is saying is that there are some benefits that come to following God that are good. They're good things that happen. I mean, you might have left your family, but now you belong to God and God's family. 
And everywhere you go, there are mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters ready to receive you with open arms. They'd certainly seen that. They'd been welcomed. You might have left your home, but there are going to be people who are going to open their home to you. You might have given up your sustenance, your ability to produce food for yourself, but hey, look, this is my father's world. He owns the cattle of a thousand hills. You don't have to worry. He knows what you need before you ask him. If he can make the flowers look so beautiful and the birds of the air never have to wonder about what they're going to eat, don't you think he can take care of you? That's what Jesus would have his people know. He might not have won the Powerball. But Paul says in Romans 8, if the God who didn't spare his own son, if God didn't spare his own son, will he ever hold back from us the good things we need? I mean, God has already demonstrated for you his love for you. That you owed an incredible debt. You're made by him, created in his image for perfect fellowship, and yet you sinned against him, accruing this massive debt to a holy God that someday you were going to have to pay, and yet he gave his son Jesus. Paul says, he who was rich for our sake became poor, so that in him we might become rich. But there's a certain type of worth and value that exists in the universe that's not just about how much money's in your bank account, that your value fixed, your ransom was paid at the cross of Christ. And so you can be confident of God's protection and provision over you. I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 4. Of course, he's sitting in a Roman jail cell and was relying on the kindness of his friends around the Roman world to provide for his food while he was there. And the little church in Philippi had thought about Paul and had some extra funds at the end of the year or something, and they sent it to him. And so Paul wrote him a thank you note, which we call Philippians. And at the end of it, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you've revived your concern for me. Indeed, I know you were concerned before, but you just lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from a place of want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstances, I, I've learned the secret of being fulfilled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the essence of the Christian faith. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he exposes our heart's desire. What do we really treasure and value? Is he the pearl of great price? That when the merchant found it, he sold everything he had to buy it? Is he the treasure buried in a field? That when the man stubbed his toe, he sold everything he had so he could buy the field to find it? A money's not in itself, the bad thing. It's the love of money which gets us wrong. God gives us money as a gift to provide for our family's needs, to help the people around us, and to further his mission in the world. But when it's the treasure of our hearts, that's when we're in trouble. Jesus is calling you to treasure him above all else, especially money. And so I wonder, if Jesus were here, standing right in front of you, and you asked him the question that this man asked, what must I do to receive eternal life? What would he say to you? What one thing? You know, do you need to rethink your attitude towards money today? I think you should at least 
ask the Lord if you got the right attitude. I mean, why not today? Just say to him, the quiet of your own heart, God, today I'm committing to treasure you above my money. You be my treasure. Maybe you need to repent of your sinful pursuit of money. If you're honest with yourself and with God, it's become the focus of your life. You're so distracted by money, so worried about money, so consumed by money. What you need is to have your mind completely fixed on Christ and to trust that God will provide. Maybe today you need to go home this afternoon and reorganize your finances so that Jesus would be your treasure. Your finances would reflect that, that you'd get those priorities in order to provide for your family's needs, to help others, to extend God's mission. Maybe this morning you need to express a prayer of gratitude for God's provision in your life. You don't know how you got where you are. You look back on the decisions you've made, the wealth that God has entrusted to you, and you're just blown away how God has blessed you. If that's you, thank him for that. That's straight from him to you. Your father knows your needs, and he's provided. Will you pray with me?